Last week on um, February the 2nd, I gave a talk on the elements or characteristics of the second noble truth, which is the cause of dukkha. And those characteristics are craving and clinging. So I talked about them from a traditional perspective, but also from a more modern neuroscientific perspective perspective. Uh, and this week, that talk has shifted a bit. Um, the title of tonight's talk is How to Change Your Karma. And I'm going to talk about something which is considered to be a key um, concept of Buddhist psychology called Paticca Samuppada. The uh, traditional translation of Paticca Samuppada is dependent origination. But I've developed an alternative uh, translation and I call contingent provisional emergence. I'm going to be talking about that in somewhat more detail. Uh, this is a, a really complex uh, concept. So I'm going to kind of uh, talk my way through it. I have 10 pages of notes. Uh, I want to encourage you all, if you're at all interested in understanding this, to go to the website after I posted it and download the doc file that will um, explain it. And the doc file uh, includes the graphic that you have displayed on your screen. So, I also, before this talk tonight, I provided a guided meditation, contemplation of um, how craving and clinging comes to be and how it can be resolved, which is really the, uh, the focus, of the intention for understanding the second noble truth. So, just a quick review. Uh, craving is an instinctual driving force that provides an impulsive reaction to any stimulation. I mentioned that during the guided meditation, to notice your subjective experience of that and just let it go. And clinging comes about as a result of the inability to objectively and non-reactively investigate how the mind makes meaning and creates a behavioral response that it's in relationship to the experience of craving. So, as I mentioned in the contemplation, uh, craving and clinging are like the two sides of the same coin. When you have craving, clinging will be there. But let me make myself clear about this. Craving emerges from feeling. And you look at your graphic, you'll see that at the bottom of the graphic... There's a feeling, and then just beside it is a craving, and beside that is clinging. That is an important consideration in this practice, this process. So, um, here's a quote 
from um, the Buddhist doctrine, from the Majina, Majima Nikaya, that describes the dependent origination, Paticca Samuppada, in the context of what are called the five clinging aggregates, which is the Buddhist concept of personality. Here's the quote. The form of what has thus come into being is gathered under the, under the form clinging aggregate. The feeling of what has thus come into being is gathered under the feeling clinging aggregate. The perception of what has thus come into being is gathered under the perception clinging aggregate. The fabrications of what has thus, become, thus come into being are gathered under the fabrication clinging aggregate. The consciousness of what has thus come into being is gathered under the consciousness clinging aggregate. One discerns. This, it seems, is how there is the gathering, meeting, and convergence of these five clinging aggregates. Now, the Blessed One has said, whoever sees dependent a co-arising sees the Dhamma. Whoever sees the Dhamma sees dependent a co-arising. And these things, the five clinging aggregates, are dependently co-arisen. Any desire, embracing, grasping, and holding on to these five clinging aggregates is the origination of stress. Any subduing of desire and passion, any abandoning of desire and passion for these five clinging aggregates is the cessation of stress. And even to this extent, friends, the monk has accomplished a great deal. Additionally, here's another quote from the Mahanidana Sutta. The Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, It's amazing, Lord, it's astounding how deep this dependent co-arising is and how deep its appearance. And yet, to me, it seems as clear as clear can be. The Buddha, Don't say that, Ananda, don't say that. Deep is this dependent co-arising and deep its appearance. It's because of not understanding and not penetrating this Dhamma that this generation is like a tangled skein, a knotted ball of string, like matted rushes and reeds, and does not go beyond transmigration, beyond the plains of deprivation, woe, and bad destinations. So <clears throat> this notion of dependent origination is described in a linear way. One thing leads to another. I have it organized in terms of... Uh, circular graphic uh, and it's often uh, graphically displayed, uh, displayed as the links of a chain but the weakest link is the, the correlation between feeling and craving and clinging but um, it's a holistic consideration that's why in the graphic you see that there are arrows pointing both ways around the circumference of the graphic, but there are also arrows going across ways. What that means is that they're all interdependent. So this leads me to explain this uh, key concept as contingent provisional emergence. And I've been studying this for 40 years. I've talked about it a lot, I've read about it a lot, because um, it's really important. And uh, it shows us how literally we change our karma. Now, karma is going to change one way or the other. It's either going to change in ways that are 
promoting more dukkha or going to change in ways that are promoting liberation from dukkha. It all depends on what are called skillful means for uh, recognizing this process. So, contingent. What that means is that there are multiple concurrent events that are interactive in function, mutually interdependent, mutually influential. These events are in proximity and press on each other. The moment of subjective experience is mutually interdependent, interdependent with other environmental and co-occurring factors. Uh, the five clinging aggregates that were mentioned previously Stimulation of form, which is environment, light, sound, uh, temperature, pressure, so forth and so on. Um, stimulation, sensory stimulation, interacts dynamically with feelings, perceptions, and mind conditioning factors, all reflected in consciousness and all affected by craving and clinging. They're contingent upon each other. Well, here's another quote from uh, the suttas. When, and this is basic logic, actually. When this exists, that comes to be. The arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. So, if you think about the number of factors in our everyday experience the variability of them. You know, all the light that stimulates the visual process, all the sounds that stimulates the auditory process, all the potential mental formations, the fantasies, the worries, um, the, the plans, expectations, all of these are changing all the time in a multiplicity of ways. They're, they're called the six sense bases, which is reflected in the... In the uh, graphic. So it's limitless. The number of potential uh, manifestations or configurations is literally limitless. There have been estimations that the, you know, the, the connections between neurons in the brain, that's just in the brain. It doesn't count all the neural connectivity that goes out throughout the body. Just in the brain. There are more potential neural connections than there are uh, stars in the universe. You just think about it. Neurons can have anywhere between uh, one and 250 connections. And there are millions and millions of neurons. You just think about that, the complexity of that. It's astounding. Yet it all comes together in a moment of subjectivity that we call the ego, the self. So these are all contingent upon one another. When we're talking about provisional, we're talking about how the interactions between these different um, aspects of consciousness operate. I'll make it really simple, between A and B. That's what, uh, when the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. So, um, 
this interaction is constantly changing internally and externally and it fluctuates. Sometimes the signal strength is really strong, sometimes it's weak. Sometimes your attention is really focused, sometimes you're pretty distracted. So it's changing all the time. So, um, the contingency, the contingent interactions provide a particular configuration. It's momentary, fraction of a second. That's what we're talking about in terms of contingent provisional emergence. The interactions provide a particular um, set piece, if you will. So, um, in this context, emergence is, I use that term because if we talk about origination, that implies very strongly that there's a start point. And Buddhism is not concerned about start points. Buddhism is not concerned about when the world began or when it, it will end. In fact, people would ask the Buddha about this, these kinds of things, and he'd say, to consider them is missing the point. That will not lead to liberation. It will just confound the mind. Emergence is something that's um, it's in, it's kind of implicit in the Buddhist doctrine, but it's something that's been studied quite a lot in terms of what's called complexity theory, which is started being studied in the early 20th century and really has come to fruition in the 21st century. But complexity basically means that when you have a number of systems interacting with one another, they're going to come together in ways that are kind of mysterious, uh, organized around what are called attractors. Um, an attractor has a particular kind of potentiality or influence that um, causes these different, the multiplicity of these different conditions to kind of coalesce and then fall apart. A great example is there's dust floating in the atmosphere all the time. When there's sufficient humidity in the atmosphere, that humidity will start to coalesce around a particle of dust and create a raindrop. And because the, the water, it's accumulated around the, the uh, dust particle, is heavier, it falls and we call that rain. Now, if the temperature drops, then that attractor, the, the attractor is the change in temperature relative to the water and, and the dust particle changes into what we call a snowflake, right? This is complexity theory. And it's said that uh, there are no two snowflakes alike. In all the complexity of the world, universe, there are no two snowflakes alike. Of course, how is anybody going to know this? You know, it's an infinite sample size, but it certainly does point to the notion of um, interdependence and non-self, right? So uh, that's what emergence is about. No consideration of um, when things started and when things end. No consideration about when 
my selfhood begins or ends. It's not a consideration of that. And it's one of the aspects of, of Buddhism is this notion of, of uh, re- rebirth. Right? That, uh, karmic influences, which is what Paticca Samapada is about, is karma. How karma operates. Um, you know, the Buddhist concept of rebirth says that there are karmic accumulations that occur because of craving and clinging, either the most fundamental and crude craving and clinging, you know, wanting to um, eat something flavorful, um, gorging on it, right? Um, the most crude and, and gross manifestation of that to the most subtle manifestation, which is the belief that there's an autonomous and enduring self. Craving and clinging is also involved in that very subtle but fundamental uh, aspect of human experience. Buddhism says, well, the karma just simply changes and takes a different form. Now, once again, I don't care about that. What I care about is the form that's that's arising and passing away on a moment-by-moment basis. And I think that's what the Buddha was talking about. Because if you, you talk about the notion of rebirth, once again, in terms of uh, lifetimes, uh, it, it, it's irrelevant. It's how you live right now that matters. If there is a rebirth or heaven or a hell, okay, so what if? All right, what are you going to do about that right now? To me, that's a really important aspect of this. Um, so, an interesting, as I was putting these notes together, an interesting uh, insight came to be. Um, so, I'm going to read the paragraph that I put together about this. Paticca Samuppada represents what may be the first statement in human history of what the modern mind recognizes as a psychology of consciousness. In terms of spirituality, rather than attributing the origin of human salvation or damnation to an external supernatural being, the focus of Buddhist Vipassana insight practice involves investigating how psychological conditions unique to the individual and the contextual circumstances of environmental conditions provide the critical interdependent factors that affect spiritual progress or downfall. This concept doesn't deny or affirm a supernatural force in the universe, but rather indicates that humans are ultimately responsible for their salvation, whether there is a God or not, in terms of logic, and when I'm, after this I italicized it, because I think it's really important. If there is a God, the moment that God influences the outcome of the natural world, then God is also interdependent contingent and provisional, emergent in the unfolding of subjective reality. The universe is contingent, right? To me, that's a really profound conceptual structure. The challenge for us all in the process of awakening is to have direct experiential awareness of this. That's what Vipassana practice is organized around realizing So, how the system operates. This goes to the chart. 
First, I'm going to do a kind of a, a quick review of that, and then I'm going to go on item by item. Theravada Buddhist tradition considers provisional emergence to be a chain of associations with 12 links. Ignorance clouds or distorts the incoming sense data as various karmic formations are activated. Karmic formations are reflected in consciousness, which in turn supports the interaction providing the mind-in-form process. Mind-in-form acts through one or more of the six sense spaces provisionally, through the six sense spaces, contact or stimulation arises. Contact provides feeling, sensation, perception. Because ignorance and karmic formations are influencing feeling, sensation, perceptions, and craving, which is strongly linked to clinging, produces the aggregation of conditions that shape becoming. This immediately leads to rebirth, to birth, that is, a momentary aggregation of the provisional self followed immediately by decay, and finally, death of a transitory ego state, which due to ignorance through the actions of craving and clinging, what we call the self, recurs. This recurrence happens multiple times a second. The goal of this training, one of the goals of this training, is to create a quality of mental acuity and agility that allows us to notice the moment-by-moment arising and passing away of these self-state organizations. I've had this experience. It's happening to all of us all the time. Um, There's a book called The Mind Illuminated by Chula Dasa, C-U-L-A-D-A-S-A. It's a really good book. We've used it in the study group. I've actually talked about it in the Dharma Talks over the years that talks about this moment by moment arising and passing away multiple times a second but you can notice it and I know you can because I have noticed it that's direct awareness of anicca the transitory nature of subjective experience the more clearly and directly you can notice this without attachment without craving and clinging the more you realize there really is no such thing as an enduring autonomous self so that makes this uh, concept of Paticca Samapada real and useful, productive for the process of awakening. All right, now I'm going to talk about these factors. Um, individually. Once again, realize this is non-linear. They are influencing each other all the time. Not one thing leads to another. First is ignorance. Primary word of that is avija. Uh, the word vija means wisdom. Avija means the absence of wisdom. It's considered to be the primary fundamental cause of dukkha. Another term commonly describing avijja is delusion. So ignorance or delusion. It could be described as the uninvestigated default programming of lived experiencing experience. Unquestioningly, taking what arises in awareness is a true rendering of the self and the world. And this must be understood both as a concept and through direct subjective 
experience. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of how reality and the mind interact. So, self-creating is uh, an interaction between stimulus and response. This goes to the, the Nama Rupa, which I'll be talking about. Uh, mind and form. Uh, so, we are immersed in an organic experience, an embodied experience, sensations, visual stimulus, auditory stimulus, so forth. And consciousness, which makes meaning, makes a self out of that. It's a fundamental characteristic. Uh, avijja is, because of craving and clinging, not really aware of this. So the process of selfing operates in that way. So as I mentioned before, um, the complexity of the universe is changing all the time. We think of something like granite as being solid and unchanging. But if you look at it very, very closely on an atomic level, it's changing all the time. It's just its energetic manifestation is resistant to the energetic uh, vibratory nature of other substances in the universe. This is going on all the time. So ignorance is jumping to conclusions about reality, subjective reality, and by extension, the reality of the world out there. In contemporary psychology, this is called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias has been well researched. Google it. And you'll, you can track that down. But basically what it means is that when you have a preconceived notion that you have identified with about yourself, your personality, and the world, anything that happens in the world that doesn't fit into your preconceived notion of yourself um, is ignored, disregarded, distorted. I talked about this last week. You go into a room full of strangers for a party and you, you bring into it your preconceived notion that somehow or other people don't like you. You know, that you're somehow or other you're an odd person and a flawed person. Now, the way I describe it is, yeah, you were raised in a family where people were critical and shaming and so forth and so on. So this builds a preconceived notion about your worthiness. You walk into the room, somebody looks at you and frowns. It immediately triggers that preconceived notion, that confirmation bias. I told you, people are not going to like me here. Why did I ever come? I'm just a loser. And you carry that preconceived notion into all of your interactions with the other people there, feeling very awkward and uh, sending out vibes, right? Saying things that are awkward and misconstrued and so forth and so on, misconstruing others. However, and that's what I call self-state conflict. I talked about this last, last week. That's self-state conflict. There's an ideal self, which is unworthy, and there's the world. And you assume that's the world is going to reject you or shame you. Now, with self-state integration, 
a different approach might happen. You walk in there, somebody frowns at you. You walk across the room and you say, gee, you frowned at me. What was that about? The person said, well, when you open the door, it's a bright light behind you and it made me squint. Oh. Or the person might say, yeah, well, you know, you look like a jerk. Okay, so what? That's your opinion. It must be something about your history that wants to project that out into the world. That's your confirmation bias. That's an important part about ignorance is this notion of um, without question buying into the uh, second characteristic here which is karmic influences. These are called sankara. Sankara is a very important concept in Buddhism. Uh, mind conditioning factors. And uh, these are basically your memories. Uh, sankara can be kind of neutral and habitual, habitual, like tying your shoes. Uh, sankara can also be emotionally potent. This is the craving and clinging really manifested. Um, something as simple as tying your shoes could become complicated when you um, somehow or other your process slips and you make a knot that's hard to untie. I'm sure this has never happened to you all that you're trying to untie your shoe and it gets all tangled up. Right? Happens to me. Um, it used to be that I would get really upset with myself. This proves that, you know, my life sucks. Right? That's confirmation bias. So there's two kinds of sankara there. One of them is habitual, tying your shoes. The other one is conditioned, which is uh, some kind of... Um, unhelpful self-talk, right? So that's what sankara is. Craving is the emotional potency of the memory. Clinging is the degree to which your thought processes have become habituated in regard to that unpleasant feeling. Uh, or that pleasant feeling. You know, uh, sankara can also be about your desire to become a millionaire, right? And you'll, you're going to become a millionaire no matter how much damage do you do to yourself in the world, right? So that's a sankara as well. So sankara is really how we come to be. Now, just to go review craving and clinging again, I mentioned it. Craving is a uh, felt sense of urgency, uh, the word in Pali is tanha, which is an unquenchable thirst. The word for clinging in Pali is upadana, which is translated as fuel or sustenance or nutriment. Right? So uh, it's what fuels your thirst, your unquenchable thirst. So that's important to, to uh, be aware of in terms of this. Um, the other thing is important to understand, to be clear about with Sankara, is that it has two forms. When it's stored away, a, a, a synonymous term for that is vipaka. It's like a memory. 
that has some degree of emotional potency or is just habitual. That's vipaka. It's like a noun. It's inactive. However, when it's stimulated by contact, another one of the factors here, um, it's brought into action. It becomes like a verb that shapes a sense of who you are. And then that is enacted. Birth uh, and death, right? And it falls back into storage as vipaka. Right? So, that's an important way to understand this. It's much more contemporary and psychological. Now, I mentioned the five clinging aggregates. I read that, that quote before. Sankara is one of them. Uh, there's form, which is rupa, and sanya, which is perception, and vedana, which is feeling, and vijnana is consciousness, and sankara is the conditioning factor of the five aggregates. So sankara, that's really important to understand in your experience, during the guided meditation preceded this talk, I mentioned how important it is to be aware of how there's an interaction between a feeling tone, an urgency, a craving, and the story that comes up with it. And sometimes the story will come up first, be a fantasy or a worry, and that will stimulate a feeling and they kind of reverberate around each other, right? So that's what this whole notion of the five aggregates is about. But Sankara is... Sankara forms as a result of craving and clinging or as a result of liberation from craving and clinging. So in that way, Sankara is equivalent to karma. The karma also has an overlay with intention, which is another Pali term, chaitana. So that's important to understand about the uh, karmic influence. Next one is consciousness. And that's vijnana. And it's just the medium upon which consciousness, uh, uh, these factors are um, reflected. It's like a movie screen. Movie screen has no... Judgment, no opinion. Just whatever's projected on it is reflected. Same with uh, uh, a camera. You open the aperture of a lens of a camera, light streams in and it stimulates whatever the receptor is. Receptor used to be film, now it's a little computer chip. And it records something without judgment, without any confirmation bias. Um, so, that's an important consideration to realize. That consciousness, there's no dukkha in consciousness, but dukkha is reflected in consciousness. But something important to understand about consciousness is the lingering effect of what is projected on consciousness. We've all experienced looking at a light bulb or a candle flame for a while and closing our eyes and there's an after image. It's called the eidetic effect. What that means is that the 
neural pathways in the brain that process light, they don't have an on-off switch. They're either more or less activated. It's like a volume dial. They're either higher volume or lower volume. When the eidetic image is going on, the volume is in the on position, but after a while, those neurons reduce their firing rate and the, the image changes, goes away, right? That's going on all the time, everywhere in the brain, about everything. I mentioned that these states of consciousness come and go very quickly, multiple times a second, but there's an eidetic effect afterwards that causes them to blend together. In fact, in Buddhist psychology, it's called a binding moment of consciousness. It's another thing that's talked about in that book, The Mind Illuminated. The guy who wrote it was uh, uh, a neuroscientist. So he uh, really understood this, uh, both from a, uh, a Buddhist perspective and from a contemporary scientific perspective. This, another way to understand this is what happens when you watch uh, a projection on a screen. What's really going on, particularly with the old film strips, light goes through a particular um, cell, projected on the screen, creates an impression, replaced a fraction of a second later by the next cell projection, fraction of a second by the next cell. But the way the mind operates, it blends them all together. It seems like there's somebody moving around on the screen. Right? That's the eidetic effect. That's what's going on in consciousness. So, um, it's important to understand that, that your, your consciousness is not judgmental. When your mind is serene and stable, particularly watching the sensation of breathing, the level of reactivity is significantly reduced. There's still a sense that there's an observer, an experiencer of consciousness, that's still there, but even that falls apart with the moment of full awakening, of nirvana. The next one is in the, in the dependent origination process is called nama rupa, mind and form. Nama is feeling, perception, mind conditioning factors in consciousness. Rupa is light, sound, pressure, temperature, etc., etc. Okay. So the reason it's put up there is to understand that what we really want to investigate and clearly comprehend is that what the mind creates relative to sensation is where the work is done. The work of awakening. That when you understand that the mind is creating a sense of self relative to what the eye sees or the ear hears or the skin itches or the knee aches, that's the part that you really want to understand is to be able to notice this. And this is something you learn in a meditation practice. You learn how to recognize that the quality of your consciousness 
is derived from what the mind does, not from what happens in the body. When I say in the body, what the ear hears, the eye sees, and so forth and so on. That's what that's about. Um, the next one is the six sense bases called Salyatana. It's the eyes and seeing, the ears and hearing, the nose and smelling, the tongue and tasting, and what's called the somatosensory array, sensations in the body, and the mind. So it's just a different way to describe the, the uh, Namarupa phenomena. But to be aware that this is what's going on in any given moment. That, And this is literally true in the brain. There's a part of the brain that functions to organize light stimulus. Another part that functions to organize sound stimulus, so forth and so on. And another part of the brain, which is larger, takes up more terrain in the brain, more, more neural pathways, is the mind making a self, mind making meaning. And to be, able, be aware of that conceptually starts to cue us into the notion that there really isn't anybody running the show inside. There's these different functions that are co-occurring, you know, uh, contingent provisional emergence, co-operating, integrating into moments of selfing. And then you have the direct experience of that. I mentioned this in the training meditation. You might have an itch in your body it's just nerves firing off in the skin. That's all it is. But the mind makes something out of it and makes it really, really important. It's just not important. It's going to go away. But the mind makes it supremely important. I've got to scratch that itch before anything else. It's important to be able to see that as a phenomena and not be controlled by it. And notice its impermanence. That leads us to the next one, contact, fasa. And that's the initial stimulus experience. The optic nerve being stimulated, the auditory process being stimulated, etc., etc. That's pretty self-explanatory. And then there's feeling. This is where it's really important. And I tried to emphasize this during the guided meditation. In fact, the second foundation of mindfulness, second of the four foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of feelings. And the, the, the instructions in that is to notice a feeling is just a feeling, not a self. It's just a phenomena of nature. Any organism is going to have some kind of affective response to a stimulus. Even a, a single-celled amoeba put it in a Petri dish, and you uh, put in some kind of nutritive substance, that little critter is going to wiggle its way over to the nutritive thing. That's because of what's called affect approach. A pleasant feeling. Alternatively, you put something toxic in the Petri dish, it's going to wiggle away from it. That's called affect avoidance. Right? 
It's an instinctual response that goes all the way up to the human condition. Our task is to learn how to understand and manage the feelings, to understand them as just a feeling. Feelings and perceptions are very closely aligned. Perception is how the mind begins to separate out one particular aspect of the dynamic flow cascade of experience. For example, there's sounds in the room, sensations in the body, so forth and so on, but the mind hones in on one particular light stimulus for focused attention. That's what perception is. But guess what's closely associated with perception? Feeling. It's really important to contemplate a feeling as just a phenomena of nature. It's something that any organism will experience. And feelings can be physical, uh, reaction to a physical sensation. <coughs> feelings can be mental. Feelings can be um, an, unpleasant, <coughs> an, an unpleasant memory or a pleasant memory. There can be a feeling with, you know, that's neutral. There's just some kind of mental cognition that pops up on the screen and it comes and goes. The only reason it would develop into craving and clinging is because there's some degree of potency associated with the feeling, affect approach or affect avoidance. So, a key part of changing your karma or to produce the process of awakening, mindful, non-reactive awareness of feeling at this moment of emergence as an impersonal phenomena. And that's the most primary way to intervene and redirect the unfolding of karma to dissolve the link between a feeling and craving and clinging. A craving is an instinctual response. But we can train the mind to be non-responsive to craving, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. We can override that. I talked about this a little bit last week. There are parts of the brain that, that function to regulate um, affective responses, emotional responses. Um, the interaction between what's called the nucleus accumbens, which has been a lot researched a lot in terms of addiction, and the preorbital cortex, which can either modulate what's going on in the nucleus accumbens or be hijacked by it. And we know that mindfulness meditation training empowers the preorbital cortex to override the impulsive reactivity that's associated with the nucleus accumbens. This is that transition. That's what the link between feeling and craving and clinging is. So I talked about um, craving. Well, first of all, let me go back to a quote from the second foundation of mindfulness. And how, monks, does he in regard to feelings abide contemplating feelings? Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling, he knows I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling an unpleasant feeling, he knows I feel an unpleasant feeling. When feeling a neutral feeling, he knows I feel an un 
a feeling neutral feeling. But this feeling is regarded as just a phenomena, just something that occurs. We don't have to respond to it. So there's another term that's closely associated with uh, Vedana, which is Chetana, which is intention or volition. And Chetana is very closely associated with Sankara. I mentioned that earlier. So Chetana is it's what inclines the mind toward action or toward inhibiting action. To be aware of intention is an important part of this practice. You go on a residential retreat, one of the suggestions, one of the disciplines to cultivate, when you wake up in the morning, you notice the intention to pull the covers off your body. You notice the intention to sit up. Well, first you notice the sensation of breathing. Then you notice taking your covers off, sitting up, notice the intention to stand up. You keep doing that until you go back to bed that night. That's your primary task, is to notice intentionality. Now, obviously, it's an imperfect process. But that's really what the practice is about. <clears throat> the more you can be mindfully aware of intention and redirect the energy of intention away from unwholesomeness toward wholesomeness, the more you move the mind toward awakening. Mention craving, tanha. Mention clinging, upadana. And becoming, bhava. That's the emergent function of the process. It's how we act. How we act mentally, in terms of our thoughts, or how we act behaviorally, how we move in the world. Now, in terms of becoming, we're going to talk about the original meaning of the word dukkha. There are several suggestions to it, but the one that I find most useful, the, uh, this word it came from the Aryan culture, which was a culture that had carts and chariots, wheels. And uh, dukkha basically meant the poor fit between the axle of the cart and the hub of the wheel. If you had that poor fit, there would at least be a bumpy ride. And also, the wheel would fall off at unpredictable times. That's a great way to understand dukkha. Right? So, um, becoming is how the wheel and the cart rolls together. And becoming is either going to produce dukkha or liberation from dukkha. And birth, jati, is the repetitive and momentary fruition of these contingent provisional emergence functions. Decay and death is jara manara, excuse me, jara marana, and it's fulfillment of the cycle. And then that falls right back into ignorance. So this process repeats itself multiple times, comes together in terms of what we believe or buy into as being uh, consciousness, as being a self. So, stopping the sharing now. Um, we have the opportunity for some questions or comments about your 
practice. Yes, Andrew. How to discern the difference between wholesome and unwholesome? In terms of Buddhism, wholesome and unwholesome is organized around what's called virtue. And virtue is right speech, right action, right livelihood. Right speech involves, first of all, your self-talk, but then what you say to others, whether it's harmful or not. And um, right uh, action, basically, is your behavior. And the behavior is organized around harmlessness and uh, generosity and uh, kindness and uh, so forth and so on. And uh, livelihood is your lifestyle. Uh, and those emerge from what's called wisdom in the Eightfold Path, um, which is right understanding, which is what this whole Paticca Samapada thing is about. How does karma operate? That's right understanding. And right intention is kindness, um, compassion, and generosity, and uh, tolerance. So it's an ethical consideration of life. Mm-hmm. John? Yeah. Um, I have like a, clarif- I want a clarification about the teaching of no self. Um, I think I might have a different conception of it than you, in that you say that there's like an no self as in there's a no enduring autonomous self and like I know that we use the words like I and me and like you and what those refer to is constantly changing. And like I think that that's how you understand it. But what I like to me the concept of teaching of no self refers to like our um, subjective experience um, that there is no self. Like there's just what's arising in consciousness. Like there's just the phenomena that we're oh, that we're conscious of, and that there is no self in the center of it like there's just thoughts like everything that we are aware of so that that's how i understand it which i think might like yeah that's why i would like clarification of if that's different than how you understand it i don't think it's different let me add something to it it's interdependent we co-create each other in relationships from the time we're born throughout the course of our life there's an interaction, and we know this from psychology, that uh, in order for there to be a personality, there has to be a relationship. So there's that interaction. So where my self leaves off and your self begins is constantly being negotiated, right? And it can be negotiated around kindness and Compassion and acceptance, or it can be negotiated around hostility or greed. Uh, you see, that that would add to what you're saying. So the notion of there being an autonomous self, um, a self that is inherently isolated, is a false view. And this is something that's confirmed in contemporary um, psychology, particularly what's called attachment theory. Attachment theory is not about Buddhist form of attachment. It's about what I just described in terms of co-creating each other in relationships. 
Okay. Yeah, I understand. I I understand. And I agree with that. But what I'm also pointing to is that I don't think that there's subjectively a self at all. Right. Exactly. Socially, there is. We like use we use names. We use yeah. pronouns and so forth. Socially, that's important. But fundamentally, you're right. There is no self. Yeah, and I would say that that's our experience all the time. Um, so that, that's how I understand the teaching of no self. Yeah, yeah. The Buddha said the tyranny of the I, me, and mine. I have to see through that. But that did not. In fact, after his awakening, he did not use personal pronouns anymore. He he said the Tathagata when referring to himself. And Tathagata is translated as thus gone. And my understanding of it is mastery of suchness. And he used that intentionally to emphasize how important it is to not buy into the notion that there's an I, me, or mine. So, yeah, you, you understand it. You understand it conceptually. Ultimately, the idea is to experience it directly. That the solving of the notion of there being a duality, a self and that which is not self. Mm-hmm. Yes, Bob. Um, when you mentioned about the neurons in the brain, I remember from Buddha's, the book, Buddha's Brain, <clears throat> there's, apparently there's a hundred billion neurons in the average brain. Yep. And the number of possible connections is actually more than the atoms. And than the atoms <laughs> rather than the stars, yes. And I, I mean, I can't conceive of uh, the atoms in a drop of water, so it's way beyond my way to, I can't comprehend that. Simple as that. Well, that's what the Buddha said, you can't comprehend it. Yeah. You can understand it, experientially you can understand that, but to try to, one of the things he said is that to, to try to understand the complexity of karma will drive one mad. Only someone who's fully awakened understands it. But it's not as though they can quantify how many interactions there are between the neurons in a brain or atoms in a universe. It's just knowing that it's how dynamically transitional it is. Yeah. That's all we need to know. Yeah, you know, nobody's counted them. <laughs> Right. Uh, the other analogy I had was uh, the itch, and that was my first indication that this mood, this meditation thing actually works because uh, you get an itch, and I was told from the very beginning, just ignore it, it'll go away. And sure enough, <laughs> I don't think I've ever scratched an itch. And well, here's here's another thing: you can ignore it. That's useful using the breath. You can also investigate it particularly what the mind makes of it and keep noticing how the mind wants to object and drop the objection and just stay with the physicality of it. And a couple of things can be, you can become aware of. One of them is eventually it goes away. The other thing you can be aware of is on a moment by moment basis, the interaction between the mind's interpretation of that sensation and the actual manifestation of the sensation is changing. That's awareness of insight, of, of anicca, of, of impermanence. So you can notice that eventually the <clears throat> whatever those little neurons are doing down on your skin is just, they're kind of running out of fuel <laughs> or whatever. But the other is 
is to be really curious about how the mind is operating relative to that sensation. That's the more important part. So it's okay to ignore it. It's okay to scratch it as long as you're aware of the intention to do so as a phenomena of nature. It's, you know, it's, all of these things are training points. It's just the idea is to bring awareness to it and a certain quality of intentionality. Observe the fact that it's going away and that kind of thing. Yeah. Or observe the fact that you're reaching up to scratch it. Or observe the changing nature of the mind relative to the, the itch. One last question to Peter. You mentioned clinging and craving. But where does aversion fit in, into this chart? Aversion is just a feeling. Aversion would be into the feeling part. There's a, Aversion is an unpleasant feeling. And desire is a pleasant feeling. But they're just feelings. That's what aversion is affect avoidance and desire is affect approach. And the reason I use the word affect because that's a psychological term that describes the impulsive reactivity. Uh, it's similar to an emotion, but it's not quite an emotion. It's more organized around an orientation and an action. Okay? Other questions are come. Uh, John? I uh, um, I think that that chart you need to put a second set of words around to kind of put it into practical um, for for me because I think everybody a big step is learning that you think in words and when you understand that then you see that the mind is doing its thing for example the word birth to me I think projection should be one of those words or out to the left of of, of birth because that is that is behavior that is after you've noticed all those different functions you know you become a uh, a behavior a behavior is born so I mean you know what I'm saying it's kind of like how you uh, interpret that word as to this chart whereas it, there's no one size fits all because everybody thinks of words so that's all I'm just thinking that you could know that maybe I'll try to do that just so that I can Yes, I encourage you to do that. Okay. Um, I will. Download the notes. Read. Is that on your, you're projecting that. I can look on the repeat of the show here. And, uh, it's it's embedded in the notes that I was reading from okay. that graphic. Okay. I just copied and pasted it separately. Well, I mean, I've been listening to it for many moons. That's right. You've heard me talk about this many times. And I, I just think that it would enhance it. For, to understand, you know, that that's what the brain does. It thinks and works, and that's just where your perception is, is where it all begins, and it's, it's, it's amazing. Yes, it is. Other questions or comments? Sean? Um, so, with the, like, experience of that there's no self, um, I feel like that's the experience that we're always having. It's just a matter of remembering it over and over again. And like, yeah, like I think to me the goal would be to stabilize that so that you're always aware that there is no self. That, that's my experience. Well, I would suggest that you are aware of the concept of no self. I don't think that you have a direct experience yet of no self. That's a profoundly 
impactful experience. I've got glimpses of it and it can be kind of frightening. So it's important to realize that you understand that conceptually and wanting to remember to keep bringing that back in, bringing it back in. Yes, the quieter the mind gets and the more alert the mind remains in that quietness, the more likely you are to realize non-self and the doorways to non-self are either through noticing the, the rising and passing away of these self-states and permanence or a fading away of any interest in the self. It, 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 that's, I, I don't think I used the word viraga, which is dispassion in this talk. I've used it many times before. But what it means is that you can be aware of a feeling, fully aware of it, like an itch, but there's just no emotional punch to it. It's just an experience. I, right now, my right eyebrow is itching. I'm aware of it, but so what? It's just there. Um, that can lead, it, it, if you go very, very deeply into that kind of so whatness, that also can lead to non self. So, like, what if I told you that I was having the experience of no self, like, at the moment? Like, um, because to me, it, I don't think your mind has to be quiet for you to have this realization. I think it could happen like anywhere at any time, all the time. Yes, it can. But the likelihood that it's going to happen is significantly enhanced the quieter the mind is. The less the mind is caught up in a story, the more likelihood there is to realize um, anatta or, or sunyata, which is a a, a Buddhist word which means emptiness and what it means is it's empty of a notion that there's an enduring autonomous self just trust me on this Sean that what you're saying there's a qualified yes to that because there really isn't a self there never has been but we don't really see it because the mind is too caught up with craving and clinging Very, very subtle. Uh, John? Real quick. Just the breathing, watching the breath. If you can carry that into that thought, John, of whatever, how you want to break it down, and simultaneously, you know, keep aware of that in-breath and then to the out-breath, you know what I mean? The out-breath is warmer than the in-breath. If you can carry that through the whole process, and still be aware of this thought of self and no self because that's your thinking in words. Then you're you you got you're you're on your path, in my opinion. And I, I think you gotta not let that snap of that thought dominate. You know what I mean? You gotta stay in a non-thinking place, carrying it with you. And the more you practice that, the more the more you sit, the more you get 15 minutes of you know being rich. <laughs> I would say that when I get cash from the bank, well, I get to be rich for 15. Okay, so that's the end of our discussion for tonight. We've run over a little bit. It's a very important and interesting topic. That summarizes the review of the second noble truth, which is the causes of dukkha, which is what the first noble truth is about. So next week, um, 
Allie, one of my mentees, one of my cadre of teachers, is going to uh, provide a review of the third noble truth, which is liberation from dukkha. And liberation can either be being less stressed, uh, moving from self-state conflict to self-state integration. Ultimately, the third noble truth is about the experience of the unconditioned of nirvana. So that's going to be the review for next week. As is our custom, let's sit for uh, a brief interval together. Thank you for your practice. I wish you well. Hope we're all reasonably safe and happy until the next time we have a chance to meet. <laughs>